Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and this is a show where we talk about everything that happened in the previous week in the Linux and open source world. So, for this week, we have Fedora and Red Hat Enterprise Linux both looking at doing the same thing as Ubuntu, which is providing optimized packages for newer CPUs, but they're going at it in two very different ways. We have Linux reaching 4% market share, just about 4% market share on the desktop. We have GNOME developing an extension. We have some new distro releases. We have Linux beating its gaming market share record and a lot of stuff, including Mozilla's pivot to AI technologies. So as always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, I left all the links I used to make this show in the show notes. And if you want to help me make more of these shows and just keep it going, you can also support it by clicking any of the links in the show notes as well. So let's get started. So you know that Ubuntu has plans to maybe just create packages for the V3 of the x86-64 architecture, meaning that older CPUs might be left in the dust if this plan goes forward. And it looks like Fedora has similar plans. It is still a proposal for now. It hasn't been approved as with everything Fedora related. It needs to be approved by the steering committee. But the idea would be to provide optimized binary packages, so optimized RPMs for recent CPUs when they support the required features, which is the set of extensions needed to support this V3 of the architecture. This is something that has already been done in Intel's clear Linux, which generally is considered a very speedy distribution, at least on Intel CPUs. It's also used in OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. And the way Fedora is looking at it is they're not stopping uh, creating packages for older CPUs. They would provide two versions of these packages. There would be a optimized one. If you have a recent CPU, then you can take advantage of all the performance and all the new extensions those CPUs support. And if you have an older CPU that cannot get access to all these features, you still get the usual packages that support you. You will just get less performance, but at least you'll be able to run the application and install the package. I think it's the best way of doing things because if you have a recent computer, you get a faster system. And if you use Fedora on an older PC, well, you can still run Fedora on that older PC. It's the path that I think is the best for this kind of implementation. I really hope Ubuntu goes a similar route instead of completely dropping CPUs from 2015 and older, because that's a stark cutoff, especially since some CPUs like Intel Atom CPUs uh, might be more recent than 2015, but still not support the V3 of the x86-64 architecture, meaning they would be left behind as well it would sort of kill one of the major advantages of Linux, which is it can save an old computer from the junkyard. So I hope uh, Ubuntu decides to go that route as well. And on the exact same topic, because it looks like everyone wants to make a more optimized Linux distribution, Red Hat is also looking at doing the same thing, just like Ubuntu and Fedora. But they would not provide packages for older systems. So they would only provide packages optimized for the V3 of x86-64. Sorry. 
which means that you would not be able to run Red Hat Enterprise Linux on a computer older than 2015 or like really underpowered Atom CPUs and stuff like that in order to ensure better performance for everyone that can still run Red Hat. This would be done in Red Hat Enterprise Linux 10, which is planned for the first quarter of 2025, uh, and already drops X11 in favor of Wayland. That's a move that has been confirmed for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 10, which means there would be a very clear cutoff for this version. People with older computers would just not be able to run it, and people who cannot move to Wayland for one reason or another, even including all the improvements and fixes we'll get in 2024, will also be left behind by one of the most popular enterprise distros out there, and maybe also a lot of their clones and derivatives, because if you just repackage Red Hat Enterprise Linux and redistribute it in another way, then you're probably going to follow the same moves because it would be a lot of work not to follow these moves and to recompile all the packages yourself for all the CPUs and also to repackage uh, the X server, although that's a little bit less work. And Red Hat says that even if there are no major performance improvements in this shift, to the v3 of the architecture and packages compiled just for that, they would still like to do it because it would mean that developers that create applications that target Red Hat Enterprise Linux would only have one baseline platform to handle. Currently, they, if they want to take advantage of these features for recent CPUs, they basically have to implement their own code to check if the CPU supports that. If it does, then you write the functions using these new extensions. And if they don't support it, then you have to write another code path that still works on older CPUs. It's some extra work, but I don't think I've seen anyone complain about it. Maybe, I'm, I'm maybe just not in the know. But they would still like to do it, even if there are no major performance improvements. And, and for Onyx, took a look at those benchmarks for Ubuntu at least. They did note a bunch of performance improvements for server-related workloads, but it wasn't affecting every single use case, every single package or every single program, and it generally did not look super worth it uh, for just locking out a bunch of people for the small performance gains. But it looks like Red Hat doesn't care and will do it anyway. It's gonna be interesting to look how, at how this pans out, uh, with Fedora doing it, but still keeping those older packages. But at some point, if Red Hat drops the older CPUs, maybe Fedora will do it as well. Ubuntu looking at dropping those older CPUs as well, even though we don't know yet if they're going to do it. We might see major Linux distros becoming pretty unsuitable for older computers. And it's a shame because some lightweight distros that are meant to run on these old computers are based on Ubuntu or on Fedora. So... Yeah, it's going to be an issue in the future. Uh, it's going to be interesting to look at it. Personally, I wouldn't mind too much for my own personal use because I do have recent CPUs on all my computers. Uh, but I know that for a lot of people, this would pretty much suck. And now it's time to talk about our sponsor, and it's Thunderbird for January. So you all know about Thunderbird. It's your all-in-one email, calendar, contacts, client. Uh, it does a lot of stuff. It has a bunch of extensions that let you support basically every single email service out there uh, and just change the interface how you like. But their recent, relatively recent release, which is Supernova, completely revamped the entire app. And if you haven't, 
given it a shot uh, since a few months, you probably should do it right now because it has matured a lot. It's very customizable. If you like the old interface, you can replicate it. If you didn't like the old interface, you can make a new one that looks much, much better with cards for emails, uh, placing the panels where you want a better email preview, a better contacts list, a way better looking calendar. It's all simpler, but also more customizable. And I think if you haven't used Thunderbird in a while, you will probably really enjoy this email client right now. It's the one I moved to on my computer. I only use that instead of Kmail that I used on KDE or, or Geary on GNOME. I think it's just much, much more powerful and much better. So I left a link to download the Flatpak version of Thunderbird uh, because that's what they push right now. But if you go into their website, you can download packages for other versions, well, other types of packages. And you can also just grab it from your distro's repos as well. Really recommended, and thanks Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the show. Okay, now let's talk market share. And it looks like Linux's desktop market share has been growing a lot from November to December 2023, at least if we can believe the numbers that StatCounter is putting out. If you don't know about it, StatCounter is basically a website that aggregates data from a bunch of other internet websites' analytics and it allows them to compile data into how much a specific browser has in terms of market share or how desktop operating systems have uh, their own market share or mobile operating systems and all, all this kind of stuff. So it's not 100% accurate because obviously it's a sample of websites on the internet. It's a big one, but it doesn't cover every single uh, topic, use case or, or variety of country. But it is an interesting thing to look at in terms of progression, at least. You can compare numbers from month to month. And it looks like in December 2023, StatCounter reported Linux as reaching really, really close to 4%. It's 3.90-something, which is really, really close to 4%, obviously. And it's a huge progression compared to November, because in November, Linux was only at 3.22%. So this might be an anomaly, but there is no denying that the market share of Linux has been rising faster and faster over the years. Even the, the total number, the total market share is still really low. Uh, Mac OS is at around 20%, Windows is at around 76 or 77%, uh, and then you have Linux and Chrome OS, uh, which in total reach 6.24% in December. And that's where I started noticing something weird, because I distinctly remember that in November, adding the market share of Linux and Chrome OS reached about 7%. So while Linux climbed about 0.70%, uh, it means that Chrome OS dropped a lot. And it did. Uh, it had 3.71% market share in November, and in December, it dropped down to 242 which is a huge drop. So either there's a problem in the reporting of those numbers, because Windows market share rose a lot for December as well. So either it's a problem in terms of how StatCounter identified those operating systems, or as someone suggested on, uh, on a comment under the daily Linux and open source podcast that I do for Patreons and YouTube members, uh, you can check the links in the description for that. Uh, someone pointed out that maybe it's students uh, that used Chromebooks and went home and started using their Windows computers at home, which meant the market share changed. Uh, same for Mac OS, it dropped quite a bit. Maybe just students didn't use their, their MacBooks for school and just went home and played some video games on Windows. Who knows? It might be an anomaly, it might not, but it will be interesting to follow to see if Linux 
keeps that 4% and keeps rising or if it's dropping. Because 4% is small, but if it keeps rising at that rate, uh, we're gonna reach 6, 7, 8% in a few years. And at 6, 7 or 8%, I don't think a lot of companies would pass on that market if we have solved our application distribution problem and, and app developers can actually like sell programs for Linux. Uh, but it's gonna be interesting to follow. Now, next, we need to talk about Mozilla. Uh, they published their State of Mozilla report recently, and there's been a lot of stuff going around on their CEO's compensation. I will not get into it, uh, because first, I have no idea what a CEO job entails. I never rose above a chief product officer in my career, uh, so I never was a CEO. I don't know what that job entails. Uh, second, it's not rare to see CEOs getting raises, even when businesses aren't doing particularly well. Third, compared to CEOs of a bunch of other organizations, it doesn't feel crazy, but... I will always find people getting paid multiple millions per year. I will always find that completely unjustified. No matter if you're a football player, a basketball player, a CEO, a TV news anchor, a, a movie star, whatever, no one's work deserves multiple millions per year, let alone billions. Like, you should never get that kind of salary. So it's just crazy to begin with. I, will, I will just won't talk about it much more here because I, I am not qualified to do that. What I find more interesting is the fact that Mozilla seems to want to pivot towards AI. And, well, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know my stance on that. Now, obviously, Firefox as a product is probably the flagship of Mozilla. I would say Firefox and Thunderbird are their big ones, even though Thunderbird is owned by a subsidiary of Mozilla. It's sort of a separate project. And obviously, Firefox is not doing very well. It's losing market share left and right. It's failing to gain ground uh, on mobile. And it's dropping quite a lot on, uh, on PC to the point that some organizations and governments are even maybe going to let it go and not support it anymore. Mozilla has managed to increase revenue from other sources to not be solely dependent on Google because most of Mozilla's revenue come from Google paying them to be the default search engine in Firefox, but this is probably going to stop at some point if Firefox, like, doesn't have enough market share. Why would Google keep paying for that? So Google is still the lion's share of Mozilla's revenue. And so basically Mozilla is losing money. Uh, well, at least it's, it, yeah, yeah, I think they're losing. Or at least their, their profits are, are lowering. I'm not quite sure. Uh, the CEO now said they want to be faster and to make a bigger impact. She acknowledges basically that what they're doing is just not working. And this comes as apparently the Mozilla.social instance for the Fediverse will not be moving beyond the current experimental state it's in, at least not in 2024. Uh, there was an AI chatbot that Mozilla was working on that had to be put on pause because it just was not pertinent. It wasn't accurate in, in their testing. So they basically shelved it for now. So yes, I see where she's coming from. Uh, like Mozilla is not doing well and she realizes that. The CEO realizes that. And, and so apparently Mozilla now has 15 engineers working on open source large language models. Namely, well, that's AI. And they're working on use cases in healthcare. And to power those models, uh, Mitchell Baker, the CEO of Mozilla, also said that they do need more data to be able to prototype 
and launch new products, but that they want to do it in a Mozilla way, so with privacy in mind. So what I'm thinking is that it probably means they're gonna collect some telemetry on their products, probably just like Firefox's telemetry, completely anonymized, like it's just not important if it's collected, as long as the user can disable it, or even better, uh, just has to enable it, uh, but that's not how they do things in Firefox, for example. That's probably something that's going to happen in the future, hopefully uh, by being like privacy-minded and respectful as they are right now. They also said that Thunderbird and Firefox are still a core focus for them. They're not going to drop them and they will sprinkle some AI-related stuff, at least in Firefox as well. Uh, like, for example, they recently acquired FakeSpot. That's a tool to spot fake reviews online. Uh, they also announced some kind of AI helper that you can feed your browser, your, your local browsing history in there, and any other document you want, and it's going to try and generate some insights about what you read to help you sum up the data that you've collected instead of providing you with an already baked answer. So it's not based on the whole internet, it's based on local stuff, it runs locally. They have some good ideas on how to implement AI-related things, and I think it's the right way to do it, like little AI-based helpers that run with your data, don't collect your personal data and sell it to anyone. I think that's the right way to do it, but I am a bit concerned. Um, Firefox is nosediving. Thunderbird seems to be the only project that's doing really well. They're even sponsoring this podcast for now, so they've been completely revitalized, and I really like what they've done. But Firefox is not really moving forward. It's still my browser of choice, but it's pretty slow going, and like the market share is just not getting back up. So maybe they can add a rational, reasoned use of AI tools, and maybe this will help bring Firefox back from the brink, but I don't think that's gonna do it. Uh, so it kind of feels like they're grasping at the latest trends to avoid becoming completely irrelevant, and I'm not super sure how I feel about this, but I, I don't think it's gonna help all that much. Now let's talk a little bit about desktops, and let's start with GNOME. It looks like GNOME is working on an official extension for the GNOME shell, which is a resource monitor. It's just a simple line of stats for your CPU usage, your RAM usage, swap usage, your upload and download speeds, and that's it. Uh, it has like colors to show you when stuff is under heavy load, you can click it to select the stats you want to show or not, and it's displayed in the top bar next to the quick settings menu. It's nothing revolutionary, there are plenty of third-party extensions that do the exact same thing with more options and probably a little bit better. But what's interesting is the fact that it's an official GNOME extension developed by the GNOME project. Apparently the reason behind this extension is that they used to have something like that way back at the beginning of GNOME 3. It was pretty badly written, it was like overloading in terms of resources, it apparently had some vulnerabilities or saw some flaws in there, and so it just got abandoned. But some distributions are still using this old extension that they ported over the years. Apparently Red Hat does that out of the box. Like It might not be enabled out of the box, but you have it uh, available if you want it. And so they decided to make their own, and I don't understand it. Uh, apparently they said that there's still demand for that feature, and so they, they're going to ship it as an extension. It's optional, 
It's just part of the GNOME extensions base package. Uh, it will be available from, uh, from uh, the extensions manager if you want. But I'm very confused. Uh, if people need a resource monitor extension, there are plenty of third-party extensions that do this, have more options, or that have no reported problems with high-resource usage or, or vulnerabilities. If the GNOME project felt that this is an option that needed to be provided, then why make it as an optional extension and not an option in the shell settings to enable or disable viewing these statistics? GNOME already has an official system monitor app, which displays way more information about all of this and has way more tools to manage that. And if you provide this as an extension, then the user still has to know it exists, install the right package, uh, use the extension manager or extensions app to turn it on or off. So you're not really solving the issue because if the user has to do that, they already have plenty of options to use a system monitor. Why is it not a toggle in the settings instead? I don't understand why it's that. And if GNOME is looking at projects and stuff that people really have a use for and want to use, I'm pretty sure there are other aspects of the GNOME shell that would have way more demand, like something like a system tray or a complete replacement for the system tray. For example, uh, finishing the background apps feature letting you right-click a background app to get a context menu, or maybe just displaying all background apps and not just flat packs. I don't quite understand this move. Why is it an extension? Why isn't it an option? And, and if you're doing extensions to solve what people are really using, why not do other things that people actually really want in GNOME? I don't quite understand, so I just wanted to talk about it here. Let me know uh, in the comments on podcast.thelinuxexp or on Mastodon or wherever. Let me know what you think about this. I think it's weird. Now, still on the topic of desktops, KDE reached their funding goal for Plasma 6. Uh, they had started a crowdfunding campaign. They were asking for donations to help them fund the development of Plasma 6, some sprints, some events like the Developer-Focused Academy. Uh, they wanted to fund the general KDE day-to-day -day expenses, so servers, staff, uh, and also pay some support staff to actually answer bug reports and problems and questions. Uh, so that campaign reached 570 donators, or, or I think they call them members, which probably is the number of people donating on a regular basis, like every month. Uh, this means that they will not only be able to develop everything that they planned for Plasma 6, which is good, but they will also be able to commission some artwork from professional artists uh, to make a nice-looking Plasma 6 wallpaper, to revamp the websites to better showcase Plasma and its apps, to revamp some logos and some icons for Plasma 6 as well. So it's cool. We're going to see some visual improvements all around the Plasma project and the KD project. So that's pretty nice. And they apparently have some stretch goals as well. Uh, one of the main one is apparently to bring KDE to a bigger audience. That's presumably, I think that's what it is, that's presumably to fund the development of KDE apps for Windows or for macOS or maybe for mobile platforms. So that's that's kind of interesting as well, even though I'm not sure a lot of people supporting KDE want to see that happening uh, because they probably use Linux. And uh, another stretch goal is to fund the infrastructure uh, to help developers get started with KDE development. So it's probably better documentation, more legible stuff, maybe a, a CI, a continuous integration server uh, or, or solution. 
Very interesting. So it's nice to see that KD will be able to work without worrying too much about funding. And if it means that developers also get more resources to build some really cool KD apps, if we get better icons and visuals on Plasma, I am all for it. You can still join this campaign. You can still donate if you want. Uh, the campaign will run until the release of Plasma 6 at the end of February. So you still have about 50 something days uh, to contribute uh, if you want to do so. Now let's talk about Ubuntu. And it looks like they want to stop providing their source code ISOs in the future. Uh, if you don't know what those are, and chances are you don't because no one really uses these ISOs, uh, they are disk images that are distributed alongside the install ISO you can use to install Ubuntu. Uh, and these ISOs contain all the source code for all the packages available for Ubuntu at the time of release and they're updated uh, with each point release of Ubuntu. So they are basically one static way for people to get access to the source code and, and for Ubuntu to comply with the GPL. But apparently they have a bunch of issues. First, apparently they're tricky to build. The automated process that builds those ISOs is apparently breaking very often. Virtually no one downloads those ISOs, which is probably why you're not going to fix uh, the, the breakages because like no one cares. Uh, and they are apparently very, very big because that's about six full DVDs of source code. You can already get all that source code for any individual package in your installed Ubuntu release because you can enable the source repos and get access to the source code. And it will be more up to date because it's not a snapshot at one given moment. Apparently, various Ubuntu flavors also do not provide those source ISOs. Snap packages do not provide the source in those ISOs either. And those images, as I said, they're a fixed snapshot. So if you download them right now, you don't have the very latest source code for what Ubuntu has been working on. Uh, if, if you download them after the release of the distro. So Ubuntu is now pondering discontinuing these ISOs. And I'm pretty sure someone in the community will find this unacceptable one way or another. Like, oh no, Canonical is, is working with Microsoft to, to the privacy of our GPL given rights, which, come on. I think we moved past this distribution method a long while ago. If you use Ubuntu and you need the source code for what Ubuntu does, uh, if you use Linux in general, you probably have an internet connection because Linux is not very usable without an internet connection. Uh, you just cannot install any updates without an internet connection. Like you're not going to download all individual packages and install them in the right order to solve dependency problems. No one should do that and probably no one does. And if you have an internet connection, which is sort of mandatory to use Linux, you have a way to get the source code to any of the packages or all the packages that you want, and it's going to be more up to date. So I don't think those ISOs will be missed much if Ubuntu decides to remove them. I'm sure they are useful in some edge cases, but at some point, the time you need to maintain something like this compared to the number of people who really use those, it just doesn't make sense. So. As long as it doesn't break the terms of the GPL, which is it doesn't, because like if you install Ubuntu and use Ubuntu, you have access to the source code, or you can just download it online without an ISO. Uh, I think it's really fine, and like yeah, I'm I'm sure some people will moan about this, but also I think it doesn't matter at all. 
Now, if at some point in your Linux journey, you've looked into computer-assisted publication options, so basically alternatives to Adobe, uh, how is it called, InDesign, I think, or to Quark Express, or, or even to Microsoft Publisher. If you've looked at those alternatives on Linux, you know that your basically your only choice on Linux is uh, Scribus or Scribus. Uh, I think it's Scribus, uh, S-C-R-I-B-U-S. And it's an old application, like it has existed for a while, it already existed back when I started using Linux. And it doesn't move very fast, but it did get a big, big update uh, this week to version 1.6. And this update basically brings Scribus into the modern age. It now supports dark mode, it has new icons to accompany this to stay legible. It now has the ability to render its canvas, where you're creating your document or, or, or thing, uh, on high DPI screens. And it also now has the ability to access online resources like uh, dictionaries, for example. Uh, but it also gained a bunch of features that might make it way more interesting as an alternative uh, to proprietary apps. You can now combine objects on the page and move them together without grouping them. So you've got two ways of having object groups and you can now clone objects on the page the same way Adobe Illustrator lets you handle that sort of stuff. So you can create a clone of a master object and you can apply the modifications of the master object to the clone and also have individual modifications to the clone as well. The app also gained way more scripting capabilities. You can now vertically justify the text. The canvas rendering has been made way faster as well. You get a picture browser uh, if you want to like have multiple resources and reaccess them regularly. You can get that. You now have advanced gradients like in Adobe Illustrator or in Design. Uh, you have access to drop shadows, and you can now import InDesign file formats, Quark Express file formats, iWork formats, and GIMP's XCF formats. Which means you sort of get an interoperability between open source graphics apps. Because you could create a, a new design in GIMP, uh, save it as an XCF, import it into your Scribus document, and if you make changes in GIMP, you just reload the XCF inside of your document and you're getting all those changes. So it's pretty cool to see this kind of integration. And finally, Scribus also has support for more color models and color palettes. Uh, at the time I was recording this, it wasn't available on FlatHub, but it should land there soon and you can download it from the website. Those are interesting updates and I felt I, I needed to mention that because that's often something people mention as a big gap in terms of how you can create uh, those documents ready for publication on Linux. And I think Scribus now became a much more viable alternative. Obviously, I'm sure the import for Adobe file formats and Quark Express file formats will not be 100% compatible. There will probably be some broken stuff or sync. Obviously, like it's never possible to write a completely compatible implementation of a file format that is probably proprietary. Uh, but yeah, Scribus is cool. This is an app, the first open source app I used in a in a professional context, by the way. Uh, when I handled a journal for my students' association when I was at the university, I used Scribus. And it was in, I think, 2008 or 2009, and it worked. It was far from being great, but it was almost 20 years ago. Uh, well, no, not exactly, like 15 years ago. And 
it looks like it has progressed quite a lot and it did at the time allow me to like get a really nice looking PDF document that I could bring to someone to get printed. Uh, they didn't support Scribus's native format, but they supported the printable PDF with all the printable markings uh, that they used to, to just like do it properly. So really nice application. And if you work in this kind of domain, you should probably give it a shot and let me know how well it works as a replacement for InDesign Express or, or stuff like that. Now let's talk about distribution releases. Uh, first, we got the vanilla OS 2 Alpha this week. I already covered the distro on the channel. It's an interesting immutable distribution. It gives you access to virtually any single Linux packaging format for any distro out there, but it automates that installation with a single package manager and using containers. It's really nice. It's obviously not for everyone. It's a specific use case that not everyone will benefit from. Uh, it's not really meant for Linux beginners, but it is a very interesting way of doing things. And so it got its first alpha for version 2, which is called Orchid. And it's apparently a basically a complete rewrite of most of the tooling and the distro. It moved from an Ubuntu base to a Debian base, and they also reworked their AB root tool, uh, AB root is the way they do the immutable thing, uh, which is basically when you install vanilla OS, you create two root partitions. When you apply an update, it's applied to the root partition you're not using. And to get access to these updates, you just reboot onto the new partition. If things work well, you keep going from there. And if things don't work well, you can always reboot on the older partition that doesn't have the updates. So they rewrote this entire thing. Uh, the distro will also now support sideloading Android apps. Uh, it uses FDroid as an app repo uh, and WayDroid, obviously, to run uh, those Android apps. And more interestingly, Vanilla OS removes sudo. Uh, I'm sure it will come with some issues and limitations. They're, they're replacing it with some Polkit policies, which why not? But I'm sure there's something in the Linux stack, in Linux apps or whatever, that just does not play nice with that. That like We have so many ways of doing the same thing. There's just no way that everything will work with that without sudo being there. So I'm expecting some breakage here, but it's an interesting move. Uh, like They're just really revamping how a Linux distro works, and it's, just, it's interesting to look at. Now, Vanilla OS 2 is based on GNOME 44 for the alpha, but they do want to move to GNOME 45 for the final release. And apparently it's using the Linux kernel 6.4, which as far as I know has been end of life for a while. So I hope they update that for the final release as well to at least go with an LTS like 6.6. Cause uh, yeah, that's uh, not good. So they're planning a beta for the end of this month. The final release will come when it's ready, when there's enough testing done. And it's still not a distro I would recommend to most people. It's, it's just a weird way of making a Linux distro and it's not big or familiar enough that you'll find help if you're stuck. It's a big departure from a Linux distro, but it's also a very, very big departure from any other operating system you've ever used. So I would not recommend it to most people, but it's very interesting. It's not the usual, hey, this is Ubuntu with another theme and three extensions and a bunch of default apps. It, it's just doing something really different and it's very interesting to look at. So I will probably cover it when it's officially out on the final release because I like those distros that do things really differently. And still on the topic of distros, we got the release of watOS 13 
this week as well. So it is a lightweight distro. It's meant for older computers or computers that don't have that many resources. It's based on Debian 12 now and it uses LXD as a desktop and OpenBox as its window manager. It uses an LTS kernel version 6.1 because you don't need a very recent kernel if your goal is to run on older distros, on older hardware. And it squarely aims at 64-bit hardware. There's no 32-bit support, uh, so it's for old computers, but not too old computers. Now, apart from that, the update doesn't change much. Uh, it doesn't come with a lot of pre-installed apps. There's basically no bloat. You get a browser, text editor, torn client. Well, some people would call a torn client some bloat, but uh, th there's no audio or video player. There's no Office Suite. There's no pre-installed games. Uh, it does have a graphical package installer, GDebI, which you probably already know. It lets you install their packages graphically. It is a truly lightweight distro. What's interesting is that they decided to remove Flatpak support out of the box, uh, which was present in uh, in watchOS version 12. So you can still install Flatpak manually because it's based on Debian, so it's in the repos. You can add FlatHub and install Flatpak apps. Uh, but I guess there's two, way to, two ways to look at this. Uh, if you have an older PC, you probably don't have that much storage space, so you're probably not going to use Flatpak because it can get big. But also, if you use an old distro based on Debian with an old kernel, you're never gonna get any app updates whatsoever, and so Flatpak is kind of mandatory. Like, using Debian Stable on current hardware, I would never do that if I wouldn't, if I didn't have access to Flatpak. I would never recommend using Debian 12 on hardware if you don't use Flatpak, because in a few years, the versions of the apps you have will be completely outdated. Uh, you're gonna get some security fixes, but none of the new features or performance improvements. So, yeah, I don't think it's the right way to do it, and it's not just the Flatpak fanboy talking, like, for, for recent distros that have re regular updates, if you use Arch Linux, you don't need to use Flatpak. If you use Tumbleweed, or even if you use Fedora, you have an update every six months, you don't necessarily need Flatpak, but if you use something based on Debian, Debian Stable, then you absolutely need it if you want to have up-to-date applications, which everyone should want, like, why would you not want to have better applications and more features in your apps? I, I don't understand it. So it's still an interesting distro, and I will uh, save it somewhere uh, when I make a video about lightweight distributions. I think I have one planned uh, for this month on this exact topic. Uh, so we'll be talking about this one, maybe, if it impresses me when I test it out. Okay, and let's finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, and we only have two little tidbits. First, uh, Steam doesn't support Windows 7, 8, and 8.1 anymore. You might ask, how is it gaming related? Uh, well, if you use Windows 7, 8, and 8.1 and you want to game, your best bet is probably now to move to Linux, uh, because if you haven't moved to Windows 10 or 11, it's probably that either you really hated those systems or you couldn't run them on your computer. But Linux will absolutely run on there and will let you play about 60 to 70% of the most popular Steam games. Uh, so yeah, if you're using one of these older OSs and you want to keep gaming, you should move to Linux because at some point Steam will just stop working entirely. You're not getting any security updates, any client updates. So at some point you probably won't even be able to log in at all and you're not gonna get any support from Valve for this. The second little tidbit of information is Linux has reached its peak market share in terms of gaming as well at the end of December. 
it ended the year on a very high note. It's still under 2%. It's 1.97%. Well, of the Steam market share. It's not the entire gaming market share, uh, but I think Steam is pretty representative of the PC gaming scene. Uh, it's obviously thanks to the Steam Deck. Let, let's not kid ourselves. It's not people moving to a Linux desktop. It's people using the Steam Deck. And it's still higher than what macOS has. Um, SteamOS is the most used distro out there. Uh, 40% of the Linux piece of the pie is SteamOS. So obviously it's the Steam Deck driving that market share up. And it's still very, very low if you compare it to Windows. Uh, Windows has 96.4% uh, of Steam users. So we are very far from overtaking that. But we don't need to overtake Windows, because the bigger we get, the more game developers will have an interest in enabling anti-cheat for Linux, and at least testing their games with Proton to ensure things work on the deck. We're currently seeing Apple make a push for gaming on their recent uh, Apple Silicon Macs, and they're getting some big names that are porting the games to their platforms. If game developers port their games to the Mac with a super low market share, even lower than Linux's, we are going to see people moving their games to Linux or at least supporting the Proton version and making sure that it's compatible with the Steam Deck and Linux. There's no way we're not seeing that. So the bigger we are, the better games uh, will run and the more people will be interested in buying a Steam Deck and it's a virtuous cycle that is really, really cool. So it will be interesting to see if Linux keeps growing in terms of desktop market share, because as we've seen, it reached about 4%, and also in terms of gaming, if we can pass the 2% and keep climbing, or if we plateau uh, with the Steam Deck, and if macOS finally re-overtakes Linux uh, with their recent push to get some more games. So, this will conclude this episode of the Linux and Open Source News Show. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of those topics, all the links are in the show notes. If you want to help support the show, there are plenty of links to do just that. And if you do support this show on Patreon, uh, you can also get a daily recap of the Linux and open source news. It's generally 5 to 10 minutes. It started uh, the 1st of January this, uh, this week, basically. And you're getting one episode per day on Patreon from Monday to Friday or on YouTube memberships. Uh, you get a, a video basically that is members only straight in your subscription feed. So if you want this news every day, check out the Patreon or become a YouTube member and you'll get that. Uh, so thank you all for listening. Thanks to Thunderbird for sponsoring the video. Check out the link in the description uh, in the show notes for that as well. And as always, I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.